Yeah, a little while ago, well, I was、um, on a trip with my wife. We visited some family, and、um, uh, and a, and I went for a walk with a cousin of mine. And while we were going for a walk, I wanted to find out where he was in how he was thinking about God and how he was living, because I knew that he didn't know Jesus, and I was trying to have a conversation with him to lead him. Uh, to better understand what God had done through him, and、uh, and so I asked him、uh, what he thought was going to happen to him when he died. I remember someone asking me that question, and it was a good one, and it cut me. And so I thought I'd ask him that question. And he said to me, "I believe that when we die, he said our bodies kind of go into the ground, and then we kind of in particles we all float up and become a part of the universe, and it's as if." The stars are like a, a a backdrop as to what we then become、uh, after death, and I was like, "Well, I didn't expect to hear that." I said, "Like, do you think that's true? That that actually happens?" And he said, "It doesn't matter for me whether it's true." He says, "But it helps me to get through life," and that really got me thinking a lot about how. Necessary it is that we understand truth, because you know that there is a criticism of Christians that they come to God simply so that they can have a crutch to get through as they go through life. Now, for someone who's genuinely leaning on Jesus, you've got to understand he's more than just a crutch. You realize that he's the very soul that keeps your whole body upright. And yet, that criticism is something we have to take seriously because if your religion is just a crutch, something that you can simply lean on to help you to deal with those depressive thoughts as you grapple with life and death, then in the end, your religion will prove to be worthless. The question that we're trying to grapple with today is: How necessary is it that we know truth? How necessary is it that the God that we come to and worship every Sunday is the God who is truly? The Creator of heaven and earth, and if we do have truth, then what should be the outworking of that in our lives? How should that be reflected in the way we live? This is what Paul deals with in the passage that we're looking at today from Acts chapter seventeen. Now you'll notice what Matt read out was kind of like the backdrop to the real part of the passage that I'm going to focus most of my attention on. But there's a couple of things that I want to point out from that. Um, notice they went to Thessalonica. They found a Jewish synagogue. They spoke to whoever would be willing to listen. They reasoned from the scriptures. They're trying to prove that Jesus died and rose from the dead. The result of that was that some people believed. Other people got upset. They caused a riot. They had to leave, and they said it was a job well done. Off to Berea. On arriving there, they did the same thing. They went to where God's people were gathering, and these weren't the church. These were God-fearing people, religious people, but they still hadn't didn't know the gospel. They went there to try to reason with these people to show them the truth. And I want you to read verse eleven with me because I think it's really, really important. So, Acts seventeen, verse eleven, we're told. Now the Berean Jews. Were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, and this is why, for they received the message with great eagerness, 
and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Now, you remember what Danny taught us last week when he preached? And he said to us that a guy named Luke wrote the book of Acts. Now, that same Luke also wrote a biography of Jesus, which is the third book of the New Testament of the Bible. You know, it begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, Luke, who wrote Luke, also wrote Acts. And in Luke's account of Jesus' life, He records Jesus teaching about what the Word of God is like. And Luke tells us that Jesus taught a parable, and and Jesus says that God is like a man who's sowing his seed and scattering it. And as he scatters it, as the Word goes out, the seed will fall in all different places, and, and some seed will fall, and Satan will come and take it before the person's able to believe, and Some people will receive the word with joy, but they'll get caught up chasing after riches or they won't stand up under persecution and they'll end up falling away. But then Luke tells us that Jesus said there's a seed that lands in a certain soil that Jesus himself says represents those with a good and noble heart. For the seed is planted It takes root, it grows, and it bears fruit. Now, the interesting thing about that is he says that represents those with a good and noble heart. Here in Acts 17, it's like the same language is being employed by Luke. He says that these Berean Jews were of a noble character. And do you see why they were noble? Because as the word went out, they received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They cared about the truth. And the result was God honored that desire and they were led to put their faith in Jesus. Now we've got to stop, I think, from time to time and question, what would God say about us as a church? If he were to look at us and speak about us in the same way that he spoke about these Bereans, what would he say about us as a church? Because, friends, throughout the Bible, Jesus warns the church. He warns them that although there is truth to be found in God's word, there are some communities that bear the name of Jesus that end up preferring lies and deception, false and misleading teaching that threatens the truth and zealous devotion. And when the truth is no longer valued, the result of it is the opposite of zealous devotion. 
and it breeds a casual, lifeless kind of Christianity that costs nothing and is worth nothing. A cheap Christianity that many have, which will not motivate them to carry their cross. And friends, without the cross, we have no crown. That's the idea we get in the New Testament of the Bible. Now, for me personally, I think this is very powerful because whenever there's a passage that speaks about God having an opinion of people, I think, my goodness, this means God looks at us and he has an opinion of us. For all of us, God looks at your life and he makes a judgment about you. Good and noble heart, zealous follower, faithful, committed, lazy, worthless, naked. We've got to think to ourselves, now in these days when God is telling us that we can all put our trust in Him and come to Him and value Him above everything else that the world offers, what is God saying about us as He sees us day to day and moment to moment in our lives? Friends, I love what he said about these Bereans. They're sitting there listening to the Apostle Paul. And they're examining the scriptures every day to see if what God said or what Paul said about God was true. And that's because they cared about the truth. And friends, if these guys are honored for questioning what the Apostle Paul said... How much more should we be questioning what we say and examining all our words according to what God has said? If we truly valued the truth and we cared about it as much as we should, our eyeballs would be fixed to the scriptures and we would examine them to work out if what we're hearing was truth or whether it's a lie. I love that about these guys. But even still, some believed, others got upset, they caused a riot, they had to leave, it was a job well done. And although Timothy and Silas stayed there in Berea, Paul heads off to Athens. And because Paul himself loved the truth And because Paul himself loved Jesus, have a look what Luke says about him from verse 16. So this is Acts 17 from verse 16. We're told while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day to day with those who happened to be there. Now, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. 
Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I want you to notice a couple of things here. Notice there in verse 16, we're told that Paul was motivated to reason day by day with whoever happened to be there because he was distressed that the city was full of idols. You know, notice what motivated him to speak was distress. Friends, because unless we care about the truth, we will not care enough to want to go and share our faith. If we don't feel distress at the state of those who are lost, there's every chance it's because we ourselves don't know what it is to be found. This is what motivates us to go and speak the truth. And if what's coming out of your mouth isn't in alignment with what we're seeing is the fruit of genuine faith, we've got to question, do we believe this? Friends, if we don't care that God isn't being honored, it may well be because we are yet to see his glory. That's the first thing. The second thing is the reaction of these people. Paul speaks to them about the resurrection of Jesus and some ears prick up and others think that he's a babbler. Like as if he's speaking another language. And I love this as well because you know how every one of us who are come along to church, we have this desire to want to see God in action. And we get told all the time that behind the physical realm is this spiritual realm. And in that spiritual realm, it is active and there is both good and there is evil. And we've got to live by faith in that reality and not by sight. And we want to see something. And sometimes our hearts end up making us look to the stars and wanting to see a sign to give us evidence that what God is saying in the scriptures is true. You feel that? Do you do that sometimes? Friends, notice what Luke is telling us here is that if we step out in faith and testify about the resurrection of Jesus, you will see the spiritual realm intersect with our reality. As you speak to people about Jesus, you'll be able to look into a person's eyes and see Satan glaze them over. Right in front of you, you'll see him working to take away that faith that they would have otherwise had and they'll be left dumbfounded and they'll say the dumbest things. And at the same time, you speak about the resurrection to people and sometimes you'll see eyes open and light up and that is the work of the Holy Spirit in a person opening their understanding to bring them into contact with God. You'll see that manifesting itself right in front of your eyes if you're willing to step out and speak. And if you're not willing to step out and speak, don't expect to see anything. You can't expect to see God at work unless you're willing to speak what God himself is, the power. 
for the salvation of all who believe. And in the Bible, God says there are two ways to really strengthen your faith as a Christian. The first is to serve the body of Christ well. And the second is to share your faith in Jesus with others. That grounds you. And it'll naturally flow out of you if you've been transformed by him. And I know this is hard. I don't want to say to you that if you're not testifying for Jesus, you're not a Christian, I'm not going that far. But what I am saying is that if it's not rolling off your tongue, pray to God for the courage to do it. Otherwise, your faith will likely to stagnate. And friends, a stagnating faith is a very, very dangerous thing. Because it's only one step away from there to lukewarm. So Paul sees all that. That's the context. And now if you look at the content of what Paul's about to say, have a look with me from verse 22. This is how Paul responds. Okay, Luke tells us, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now, I first want us to notice how Paul spoke the gospel, or at least opens the door to speak to the gospel to these Greeks. And you know, sometimes we think that being faithful to God means I'm going to go into a place where there are people here who don't know the truth, and I'm going to whack them with the Bible and knock them straight off their chair and tell them that God hates them. I'm going to tell them that they're going to go straight to hell, that they are foolish ignorant people. And you know what? Let's say all that may be true. I want you to notice the tact that Paul uses here so that when he begins to speak, he's actually heard. First, he finds a way to connect with them. He almost compliments them by saying, I can see that in every way you are very religious. He then goes on and says, I have looked carefully at your objects of worship. And now let me tell you about what you seem to be ignorant of so that you can come to know the truth. Friends, this is what we call wisdom and tact as we plan to share the good news with people. Now, it's not as if the truth doesn't end up getting him stoned. It's not as if Paul won't end up whacking them with the truth about God. But what he does first is he speaks to them in a way that helps them to understand that he himself was where they were. He's gentle with them. He makes that connection. He finds a way to engage with them. So they're all ears when he begins speaking. And the sad thing about these people, which I'm sure we've all got, I mean, I can resonate. I find myself in their shoes. 
Not now, but before I came to know Jesus. And you've got these guys who, in their effort to appease every God, they display their ignorance of the one true God. Because, friends, even from a human perspective, you'd know what it's like. You try to please every man, you end up pleasing no man. How much more is that true with God? Now, Paul goes on to give them a knowledge of the truth, and he gives them two very solid corrections. Have a look with me. The first is from verse 24. This is how he leads them to a knowledge of the truth. This first correction, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Now, in Athens, back in the first century, they were known for their temples. This is where Paul starts to... Now, who here grew up thinking that God was to be found in a church building? Who here went to church as if church were a location and not the people? And who would take their hat off And walk into the building and start acting reverend when you were in there. Who used to do that? Was it just me? Who wouldn't think about swearing or even raising your voice? Who would sit down and kneel as you were told? But as soon as you walked out there, you went off and put your hat back on and act as if God couldn't see a thing. Friends, Paul hits that on the head here. He says, God does not live in temples built by human hands. And there are two very clear implications of this. The first is Paul saying, if your God needs you to build him a house, if your God needs you to feed him or to clothe him, to keep him safe, to defend him, He is not a God who is worthy of your worship. The second thing is, if God doesn't live in temples that we build for him, then maybe our God really does fill heaven and earth. And it's not that he's not found in church buildings. It's just that you can't escape him. Friends, unlike a lion, God cannot be tamed or put in a cage. He can't be domesticated and put on a shelf in your home. He can't be reduced or manipulated or contained even to one particular area of your life. You can't keep him out of every area of your life. Friends, we don't provide anything for him. He provides for us. Which is exactly Paul's second point, if you read it with me from verse 25. Look at what Paul says. He's not served by human hands, and he is not served by human hands. This is what Paul's saying. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. 
Now, friends, you know how we generally get this wrong? It's when people from outside of the church think that if they read their Bible or if they pray or if they avoid certain foods or if they try to stop doing the wrong thing, stop getting drunk, stop swearing, being abusive, that it's like if I do that for God, I've done my part now I'm out of this expectation that God's going to meet me halfway. As if we could somehow make God owe us because of a service that we've provided Him. Like we've served Him now with a part of what I value. Our, our God's my debtor now. He's got to come to the party and meet me halfway. And Paul is saying God doesn't need us. We can't earn Him. We can try to live for Him, but that doesn't appease Him. And we can try to obey Him, but we'll never win Him because God doesn't need us or our gifts or our obedience. We're the ones who need Him. So we've got to ask the question, even as Christians, why are we here right now, sitting down in this hall? Why did you come here today? Are we here to try to win God over? Or are we here because we have come to know that God is worthy of all of our heart, mind, soul and strength? And what we're doing here together as a family is simply an outworking of everything that we feel as though he has filled us up to do. Friends, what a word for these Greeks who were in every way very religious. Who even had an altar to an unknown God. For them to realize that God owned every bit of stone that they built their temples with. That the altars that they put together, God owned all of it. That the animals that they sacrificed on the altar were His, not theirs. Every piece of gold and silver that they carved their idols out of, every breath that they used to pray and praise Him, that they are realizing that it was all God's anyway. How can you give that to God and expect Him to When it's his to begin with. Tell you what that would be like. Imagine giving someone a gift on their birthday that already belonged to them. And imagine you went and you got a book and you went to someone and you say, I've got something for you here. And they take it and open it and they lift and there's their name. They look at you and say, this is mine. And they go, oh, but I'd like to give it to you as a gift, as a token of... (laughs) You know all that gift says? It's that you're a thief. You stole this. Now you want to give it to me? Friends, if God isn't served by our hands because he made them, then what we give to him can't be 
to try to please him in a way that's going to earn his favor as if he'll be pleased with me now because everything is his anyway. It's the most disarming truth you'll ever hear that I can't do anything to appease God because anything that I offer to him is his anyway. You know that old hymn, how it says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling? It's that idea. That's what Paul's teaching here. This is why in the Old Testament of the Bible, God spoke to his people who were having festivals and, th- and things all in his name. And God said to them, I hate your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And you see what he's saying? Don't offer me things. You want to offer me something? Go and do the right thing. And then the things that you offer will be pleasing in my sight. That's in Amos chapter 5, if you want to go and read that later. Another good one to read is Psalm 50. God says, listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. I'd be thankful. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Do what you say you're going to do. And call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Do you see the difference? And Paul expands on this point from verse 26. Have a read of it with me. So Paul says from Acts 17 verse 26, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. You see what God did? And you know how we like to say that I've done this and that and next term I'm going to go on a holiday and I'm going to do this or that and I'm going to plan this and I'm going to plan that. And Paul, it's almost like he's quoting the very first verse in the Bible which says, in the beginning, God. Before it's about us, it's about him. Pride says, look what I did. And all that I labored to achieve. But the man who knows God says, look what God has done for me. And whatever tomorrow brings will be in accordance with his will. 
And friends, when you, when you grasp this particular truth, the relief comes in knowing that as I stand here today, I've left a massive legacy of faults and failures. And if this is true, though, that God has led me to this point, it means that God also had a plan that included my faults and failures. None of it has escaped his plans and purposes, which, by the way, have led every single one of you to be here today at this very moment to sit under his word. For many of us, again. God in his mercy giving us another opportunity to hear, to listen. For some of us, another opportunity to wake up and step up before he returns and sets this world alight. Friends, something that Jesus said to his followers, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. You know, the same is true for us. We know of an organization that takes the gospel of Jesus to tribes. Never heard the name of Jesus before. So these guys will go into a tribe. Think of the Amazons of, not the Amazon, because that's in South America, but like the rainforest of Indonesia, right? They go in there where these people are known to be cannibals and whatever else. They go and live with them for five years, learning the language, getting to know them, and then they share the good news of Jesus with them. Now, this one particular set of missionaries went to this tribe, spent all that time, they shared the gospel, and the tribal people just all broke out in joyful dancing and singing. and this this massive celebration, and they're recording them as they're celebrating the fact that they've just come to know what God has done for them in Jesus. And then as they're watching this play out, all of a sudden the whole tribe stops and they all begin to cry, to weep. Tears are rolling down their faces and they're mourning and mourning. And the missionaries are thinking, what on earth is going on here? They realized that this tribe has just reflected on the fact that their ancestors have died and did not get an opportunity to hear what they just heard. Friends, here we are. Some of us have been hearing this good news since the time we were on our mother's knees. What on earth are we going to do about it?
But friends, a good God has a good reason to do all of this. Have a look at what Paul says from verse 27 about why God ordered all things to bring us to this very moment. Acts 17 from verse 27. Paul says, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so, friends, as a preacher of God's word, I can't get to a text like this without asking the question, have you reached out to Jesus? Have you genuinely reached out to Jesus, found him? And is your life genuinely reflecting a life that he sold out for him? Because you notice what Paul is saying here, that God's will ultimately wasn't simply that we would fill the earth, but that his people would be filled with him. That was the purpose. And what this also means is that all history is salvation history in the eyes of God. Now, most of us would have been told that our ancestors came here for a better life, true? To escape from war. My wife's ancestors came here from England because someone stole a baby's bonnet. Whatever the reason was, you know what God is saying here? The reason why you're here, why our ancestors came, was so that they would sit under the word of God and come to believe the truth about who he is and what he's done for them. That God has led us to this moment so that we would hear, seek, reach, and find. And because of this, verse 29, Paul says, since God has done this, right, in light of that, therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made, in, made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And this is the command. Notice Paul says, in the past, God overlooked this ignorance. It seems like BC, before Jesus came, God gave his word to the people of Israel. So if you were going to come into contact with the word of God, you had to go to Israel in order to find it. They weren't a nation on mission in that sense. They, you could go there, but they weren't necessarily told to share this to the ends of the earth. But since Jesus came, God said, you won't have to go searching for the word anymore. It's going to come after you. And the promise that God made was that he would be found by those who weren't even looking. And God's word found me at a gym in Minchambury. I can guarantee you I wasn't looking for it. 
comes to some in their workplaces. To others, it comes through the television at four o'clock in the morning. It will come to some through their parents. It will come to others from their children. On flyers, through messages or emails, a podcast. You've got to understand, however it came to you, it was God who caused it to come. And friends, not for our amusement. Notice Paul says all this is true, but the result of it, therefore, is that you'd repent. And that is that you'd turn to God and give him your life. Because if this is just an amusement thing for you, you need to understand, you don't need to come to the Bible to be amused. The world is a theme park. You go out there and get amused. Concerts and gadgets and cars and poetry and books and water slides and the beach. God provides his word so that we'd be saved. And set apart to live a life that is worthy of his name. We're told through the prophets that he did this so that we would be given a crown of glory instead of ashes. That we'd have joy instead of mourning. That we would have a garment of praise instead of despair. That we would be a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So that we can live in a way that pleases God. Not to earn Him, but after we've received God in Christ as He's taken away our sin and opened our eyes to see Him for who He is, God commands us to repent and turn to Jesus and turn away from ourselves. Verse 31, have a look at it. This is the reason. Paul says he commands you to repent because of this. For he, that's God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Friends, notice that's the reason for the command. Judgment is coming. But this is called the gospel, the good news, precisely because the Savior is the judge. Nowhere to hide from him, but there is refuge in him. And the proof of all of this, Paul says, was his resurrection. Friends, so that we would know that of all the sacrifices people make to try to appease God, of all the blood that's on people's hands from those sacrifices that they've made, so that we'd know that there was one sacrifice that God accepted for the sin of his people. And that sacrifice that he accepted, God stamped it with his approval by raising him from the dead. That's going to work. That's where life and peace with God is found. It's not what we offer. It's what he offered as a gift to us. 
So that like one of the apostles said, that we ourselves would shine like stars. And when he returns, we are told that we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And notice, friends, the connection is how you see him will determine how you respond to him. Our lives bear witness to our faith. Our attitudes are the windows into our hearts. Whether we are casual or careful, whether we are devoted or devoid of any real conviction, whether we are reverent or kind of accidental, he by circumstance without really coming to grips with the privilege that we have to sit under his word and be counted among those whom God has saved. Friends, a lifeless kind of Christianity that costs nothing is worth nothing. It will not motivate you to carry your cross. And as a result, when Christ returns, you will not bear the crown In the last book of the Bible, Jesus says, those who I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Paul is saying here to care about truth is to care about God. And although the Pontius Pilots of the world will say, what is truth? Friends, we stand with Jesus who said, everyone who sides with truth will listen to me. They will receive the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures daily to see if what any one of us says is true. And we'll know who's come to believe because they'll do their best to align themselves And whoever else is in their care with him. Do we see that? This is the fruit that testifies to our faith. The kind of life that God says is a testimony that this here is a child of God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we cannot thank you enough that we are helpless and hopeless. That we've got nothing that we can offer to you that you need. Means all we can do is kneel before you with our hands outstretched and say, God, have mercy on us. Father, we want to thank you that you are a God of mercy. That what we don't deserve, you provide. Because you are gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
So God, as your people here today, who've just fed off your word, please help us, God, not to come here with our silly list of good deeds, even if it's in our hearts, thinking that somehow what I've done is going to make you love me more than the next person. But God, to see that you have done everything in, in Christ for us so that we can come to you, and call on you, find you and be safe in you. And that from there, Lord, we can turn around and live a life that is worthy of the name that you have given us, Christian. God, as your church, we pray that this body would be an accurate reflection of our Savior, our head. And that as you have laid down your life for us, we would lay our life down for you and that the clearest expression of that would be in our willingness to speak the truth in love to each other and live to support each other, having been supported by you. God, we need your help. We need your spirit. We need your grace every day. We thank you that you offer it to us in Jesus and pray you continue to help us to Hold on to him, knowing that all of your promises are a yes in him. We pray this in his name. Amen.